Radio. This is episode 249. Uh, this is an exciting episode for me. Jason Linger is with me and we have Alana Freeland by fate or maybe something else. Who knows? Wayne McCroy was able to do the introduction uh, to Alana and she is one of the very few people who can claim to have an attachment to the work of James Shelby Downard and by extension Michael A. Hoffman II who currently, if I'm not mistaken, is publishing books under the name Michael Hoffman. Between these two men, and by the way, before I say any of that, Alana is an author in her own right and has done tons of work on basically weather modification, the spraying in the skies. People know that that follow what we're talking about here. We may touch on that at the end of second hour. But in my personal view, I would put the work of James Shelby Downard with what he showed us in the top couple of things that I've ever bumped into in research, because without him, we would have never known, or we could be living right now and and thought that this is a fantasy far beyond the bounds of reality, which is provably not the case. And Michael A. Hoffman uh, was, as far as I know, the only living person who can recall Mr. Downard, now gone. And Alana also worked with Mr. Palfrey, which we will get into, which was the publisher that originally had to do with King Kill 33. Um, one of the most important, I don't know, she'll better define it when we get her in here. Is it, is it an essay? Is it notes? We'll discover the origins of the writing King Kill 33. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning. So, Jason, do you have anything um, or do you just want to jump straight in here? Let's jump. All right. Welcome, Alana Freeland. So excited to have you. Thanks for having me. This is an honor. I, I rarely get to talk about anything other than geoengineering. Well, before we jump in, are you into providing, a lot of people are going to want to contact you on an episode like this, so I'm going to give you fair warning. If you give out an email, you're going to get pummeled beyond belief. As a matter of fact, one of the people we just had on took three weeks for him to get through the orders of uh, the stuff that he's providing the public. So do you want to put some kind of a contact, or would you prefer to do a website, or would you prefer just to show up in comments? Well, if people go to my site, uh, my blog site, ilanafreeland.com, there is an email, and it's really simple. It's ilanafreeland at protonmail.com. I take all my mail there that is from books, mainly. All right, just so everybody knows, the spelling of that name is E-L-A-N-A, and then Freeland, pretty self-evident, F-R-E-E-L-A-N-D. Um, why don't you tell people quickly about what it is you do? You're an author, um, so they have some sense. And on the tail of that, how you became associated with the Downard, James Shelby Downard uh, material. Well, uh, I'd like to start by saying I view life mythically. Um, I am part of a myth, uh, a sort of signature life whereby uh, I've been on the trail of truth, well, probably since childhood. I had an, uh, an unusual childhood in that I was raised in an Eastern European community in America because, you know, it was sort of a Eastern European ghetto of five square blocks in Detroit, Michigan, of many Eastern European immigrants who had come to work in the Ford and General Motors factories. And it was it was wonderful. I, I can't tell you. I, I always get tear up if I hear any Romanian music or, or Hungarian music uh, because 
our lives in the neighborhood were filled with live music, um, singing, men who danced, men who punched each other one minute and hugged each other the next um, and begged forgiveness. Um, it was the Eastern Church, the uh, Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox churches that most people belong to. And my grandmother was a descendant of the Roma people. So she was a bona fide gypsy with clairvoyant capabilities. Um, I re one of my best memories is of her uh, in the kitchen, small kitchen. We were quite poor. And um, she raised me pretty much, she and my grandfather, because my mother worked ceaselessly uh, for uh, money to send me to private schools, to give me what she had not had when she had been a poor little immigrant girl in uh, during the Depression. So I pretty much bonded with my grandparents. And I would stand by my grandmother when there would be a line out the back door of Eastern Europeans in the 50s, waiting to uh, talk to the gypsy to find out how the how their relatives were doing in the old country. And um, she would read tea leaves and cards. And um, she never took a penny from anyone uh, for these this skill that she had. She uh, constantly uh, had the mystical as part of daily life. I never, I never imagined that people would uh, put the mystical part of life uh, on a shelf and then um, shut the cupboard doors on it and not use it as part of the understanding of what this world is all about that we've been born into because my grandmother um, constantly referred to that aspect. I remember her, we were going on, we had to take two buses to a plot of land that she rented to grow all of our vegetables. And um, on the bus, before we arrived at our regular spot, she suddenly said to me, we have to get off. And I was confused, so we got off. And I said, Grandma, why did we get off? It's, it's not our stop. And she said that the man on the bus had been giving me the evil eye and that she was protecting me. Um, she also said another time that she was sad. She had thought America was the greatest country on earth, but she now realized that Dracul had come to America, Dracula, uh, that his spirit was prevalent in the United States. And I guess those those few incidents, uh, there are others, of course, but the, the few incidents that remain in my memory from my childhood with my grandparents all point to what I do now, which is uh, explore the underbelly of uh, American politics, uh, American ethos, American culture. And um, I, I think that uh, I chose my parents very carefully, one side the Romanian uh, aspect that I needed, and the other side with my father, who was, I found out only when I was approximately 60 years old, had been... Um, had belonged to Naval Intelligence, the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Office of uh, Naval Research, uh, the ONR. And uh, so he, he was a scientist. He was an inorganic chemist by trade. He taught at the University of Missouri. 
Uh, I remember when he got his PhD. Um, uh, we left him when I was three, and that's a story in itself. It it appears that he was um, he was bound and to naval uh, intelligence all his life and went on many journeys. I checked with his second wife. Um, he had he would go often on trips and um, no one ever knew where or when or, or anything about them. And everyone learned to not ask him. So I think that, um, I think that what I do came straight out of all of that, that uh, some of which I didn't learn until I was 60. Uh, so that's kind of my history of why I am doing, following this mythical trail. And when I say mythos, I was a professional storyteller for about 20 years, uh, paid to go to psychologists and psychiatrist conventions and libraries, teacher associations. I would go and tell stories, and for the psychiatrists, they would spend time analyzing the fairy tale that I told, because it was always a fairy tale they wanted to hear. It's the, it is the oldest form of story that there is. So. Uh, all of that kind of pours into just about everything I do. I mean, I started four Waldorf schools here in Washington State. Not a, not alone. I certainly had a, a amazing people sacrificing in order to give their child uh, a Waldorf education based on the principles of Rudolf Steiner. I was trained at a Steiner Institute uh, in um, Waldorf teaching and uh, and found it to be uh, absolutely brilliant, absolutely what any child in America would need up through grade five at the very least. And so um, all of that kind of pours into whatever my, quote, mission of the day, unquote, is. I've had about four or five missions now, and I'm now kind of finishing, not not seeing a finish line for the geoengineering mission for another two years, but certainly this third book I'm working on now is my last book on geoengineering. Um, it is being normalized now ever since Mr. Trump entered office. Uh, it's, it's no longer a conspiracy theory, it, but it's being predefined uh, and uh, kind of pre-chewed up for the American mind to think of it as only weather engineering. It is much, much more than weather engineering, as this final book will prove. So that's kind of the overarching view of uh, how I pursue life. And as far as Mr. Downard, uh, that was through my uh, relationship with Michael A. Hoffman II. He uh, was... He was someone I came across when I was doing a lot of conspiracy, so-called conspiracy research, uh, reading uh, very profusely. My research librarians in my town were working overtime for me because I was writing my Sub Rosa America series, which is about is a fictional approach to history of America since John Kennedy's assassination. And, and that's part of my mythology as well, in that I was chosen at Girls State, which is a, a political um, organization for teenagers who 
seem to have some future. And I have no idea why I was chosen. I, I was coming out of a very difficult period of leaving my mother and living with my father and his family. But I was chosen for Girls' State, and then at Girls' State, I was chosen by all of Girls' State. Almost everyone voted to have me represent them in Washington, D.C. at Girls' Nation. So I consider that a destiny move, I suppose you would say. Uh, I, was, I went to Washington. It was the summer of 1963, and I had tea with John Kennedy in the Rose Garden with 99 other girls, and boys, and one of those boys was probably Bill Clinton. He referred often to that summer and uh, when he was at Boys Nation. But in his case, there were many photo ops being taken of him, so obviously he was being groomed. Uh, for me, I have one picture of myself in which I do look a lot like Jackie Kennedy because um, John Kennedy um, kind of picked me out of the crowd and um, said how much like his wife I looked and a photo was taken of us and I became a overnight five-minute celebrity in my home state of Missouri. And then uh, three or four months later, he was dead. And I had to go back to the civic groups to give another talk about my day with Kennedy uh, into room, uh, a room filled with sobbing Americans. And it was, th that was probably my, um, probably my most political moment when I, I suddenly awakened as a political being, uh, very, very young. I mean, I was only 16 when I graduated high school and I, uh, I wrote the Sub Rosa America series because of my grandmother's love for this country and what she had said about Dracul. I was already on the trail of Dracul. Um, and because of what happened to John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy, the three heroes of my generation, um, I call them the three kings. And um, I, I had to write those books, and I tell you, I could not write fast enough, but I, at the same time, was reading profusely and taking probably thousands of pages of notes, so, and that that's kind of how I uh, approached, that's kind of how I approached life, is from one mission to the next. So let me jump in here, uh, and I'll preference for the audience. We're going to set aside many aspects of JFK to get to the heart of what James Shelby Downard showed us all. And in a moment here, I'm going to ask how Alana got tied into the Shelby content. But people should know that as far as I know, and Alana can correct me if I get any of this wrong, because everything I'm doing is from secondhand, even the versions of Shelby's writing, sometimes you get into them and you realize this PDF is incomplete or this PDF has been changed. Alana has the benefit of having seen the original material. So let's actually, I'll just switch gears. Let's jump in right there, Alana. How was it that you became associated with the publisher and the material that James Shelby Downard tried to give the world, which was quickly censored in the 80s? When I was uh, living in England for a few years, I had a copy of the manuscript, uh, Xeroxed copy of a, a manuscript that Shelby had written. Uh, you could see that it was done on a typewriter or many typewriters. 
that I had gotten from Michael A. Hoffman, who at that time um, was selling them. And I think they were like 10 or $15. They were not a lot. Uh, and I, I simply couldn't read it well. Uh, it was pretty badly written and lots of crossed out things and that sort of thing. So I thought, shoot, I've got the time. Uh, and I typed like lightning. So I would sit down and pencil over and make an make a nice copy, make it make it seem right. And then where Shelby assumed the reader knew the mean the occult term or uh, some sort of term uh, like um, onomancy and you know some of these terms that occultists know, I would uh, do some research on the internet to come up with a bit of a definition to put into the manuscript. So I made my decisions, but I always kept Shelby's tone. I always uh, had great respect for what he was telling, the, the amazing story he was telling about America uh, uh, through a Freemason lens at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, so uh, when I finished that manuscript, I contacted Adam Parfrey at Farrell House Publishing and said that I had done this, that no one had asked me to. I had done it and that I would, I wanted uh, to, uh, I knew he had known Shelby and I wanted to give him the copy to publish. So he was pretty suspicious of me that I would do something like that for no money. Uh, he didn't understand that, that I, I really needed to understand exactly what Shelby was saying. So that's why I had edited the entire book. Uh, but he asked me to send him not just the uh, internet copy, but the hard copy of the original manuscript so he could see what I had done and make his own uh, surmise on how good, how well I had done it. So I sent it and um, he was uh, blown away and um, pretty much stuck to everything I did in the manuscript. Uh, I think he left a couple of things out at the end. And then he wrote his uh, introduction uh, which is quite glowing about Shelby, and um, and and published it. What was the published title, please? Uh, the published title is I, I, I've never liked the title, so I, I have to remember um, the Carnivals of Life and Death. Is it still available, or was yes. that yes okay. through Feral House and so, on Amazon? So we're actually talking about the biography that makes it up to about the thirty-year age of Mister Downard. Yeah, I think he was uh, uh, 27, mm. and his plan was to continue, uh, but he died in 98, 96. Though I, you know what I suspect, I suspect that there's more of that biography, um, and I, I think you might have some insight there, but go ahead. Yeah, I would, I would hope that there would be somewhere, and I don't know if Hoffman would be my guess as to who has it, um, but I don't, I don't know. I haven't really pursued that. And then Adam died uh, two years ago. So uh, both, you know, both of those are dead, but Michael Hoffman's still alive and well. And as far as I know, in Coeur d'Alene, I'm kind of sending out a search now to um, uh, find out how he is uh, so that um, I can tell him about you. Yeah, I would love to have him on. So let's just sum quickly for people who are not familiar. Just let me try to catch everybody up and I'll say it again. We're setting aside aspects of things we've covered about JFK to get to this foundational bedrock important information. So the people we've covered are Adam Palfrey was a publisher, 
and he took on a lot of things that he took a lot of heat for. He's dead two years now. James Shelby Downard, the center of what we're talking about here, the man who pulled the veil back so abruptly, uh, he's no longer with us. Michael A. Hoffman knew him personally. Alana did not know Downard personally, but has the connection to Michael A. Hoffman. Um, a lot of people would like to say, you know, it always goes on. Was he a real man? Was it? It, it doesn't matter. Um, if you go down that road, you're wasting time because what matters is the information and you can verify this information. And so I'm going to lay it down. Not only are we going to cover Downard, we're going to cover how he showed us the keys of how the underbelly, the bridge too far, as most of us would see it, actually works. And it is not a bridge too far. And by the way, he'll even teach you some things about bridges you never dreamed of in your life. And so <laughs> what we're going to cover here is the alchemical right of prima materia. So that ties it into the natural sciences that we do so much of here. Also, the killing of the king. These are three procedures. One, two, three. The alchemical right of primo material, or the first material. The killing of the king. And then, I don't know if Alana's going to correct me, but I kind of feel like we're right living number three right now, called the revelation of method. And I think she might have hinted to this uh, with regard to the chemtrails we see above our head, or the geoengineering, the normal... The, it, it becoming normal in society with a misconception of what's actually going on. So that was your connection of how you got connected to the downward material. And by the way, I got to ask, was Michael A. Hoffman II, his name at that time, was he okay with you publishing that material? Well, uh, when I talked with, with Adam Parfrey about uh, publishing, uh, it seemed to me that there was a bit of a maybe a conflict between him and Michael Hoffman, uh, some sort of uh, competition perhaps, or I don't know, because I, I never was clear if, if they were together with Shelby when they both met him down in Texas. Uh, I don't know if they I, did. I thought separate. they were. Yeah, I thought they were. And it seemed to me that they had known each other a long time. And certainly you know, when when the New York, I think it was the Washington Post or, uh, yeah, it was the Washington Post. When it published an obituary article on Adam's death, it was obvious that Adam uh, is very well known. He lived in Hollywood for many years. He knew many, many uh, important sort of, uh, you know, on the edge people. And, um, and he had a lot of clout. He had he had an amazing life himself. In fact, a biography is being written of him. I don't know at what point it is now. So um, Adam uh, indicated that Michael was not happy that uh, his manuscript that he was selling for fifteen or twenty dollars was now going to be a book, and that I had edited it without his basically his permission. So uh, I guess they sorted that out. But the truth is that 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 my contact with uh, Michael Hoffman really ended back uh, back in the early two thousands. Before I did that editing, we used to correspond about different things. Mostly me asking him questions about this, that, and the other. I had read his amazing book. Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. An important book, everybody. Sorry to interrupt, but that's an yeah. important book. Say, say the title and the author one more time because people right. are going to want it. Michael A. Hoffman II, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. And it is. It is. Uh, I was just going through it last night 
just to kind of get ready for this. And it is brilliant. It is it nothing is. short of brilliant yeah. and insightful. I mean, you will not, it'll blow your mind if you are not accustomed to translating this seemingly pedestrian life of making a living, taking care of the kids, staying out of debt, uh, and translating it to how we are all being manipulated by the media error era. So the last thing I remember Michael saying to me in a letter that made me feel really good was that he called me a true Rosicrucian. <laughs> and uh, I... Um, you know, I have to correct people all the time. They think of Rosicrucian as Freemason. Not so, not so. The Freemasons have co-opted the term, just as they've co-opted the Knights Templar term uh, from the real Knights Templar history. And, um, and all of that, that, I mean, it just goes to prove Michael's thesis that everything is manipulated by secret societies that has to do with the people, and I am one of the people, finding out the truth of what is going on. By the way, just to be clear, uh, you think you have some idea of how the kind of underbelly foundation of this country, you, you have no idea. And it's men like these. We owe Michael A. Hoffman II a debt. We owe Shelby Downer a debt to some degree. For Alana getting involved to so this could be published out as more than just Xerox copies, you know, weekly traveling around the world. And even, even in all this, I want to make a point here. From what I have researched, as far back as the 80s, this material was being blocked in every way it could be blocked. Um, and I find the, the story about Palfrey interesting uh, because somehow he was able to stand on his two feet and take the heat for things that he published. But let's let's get into the crux of James Shelby Downer, where we still have time in the first hour here. In the notes you handed me, you wrote James Shelby Downard, an early 20th century American Freemason and early American 20th century American Freemasonry. If you were going to just kind of cliff note what we're about to get into, what would you say James Shelby Downard gave the world that the 99% of us had no damn idea? On the surface, the first layer, I mean, it's multi-layered. On the first layer, what he gives us is a, an historical look at what Freemasonry really is all about. Uh, and I, I'm using present tense there because, I mean, Shelby talks about the early 20th century. So that's, what, 100 years ago. But I'm telling you that what they were up to 100 years ago with their so-called hijinks, they called them, uh, with uh, their uh, Masonic apoplexy that Michael Hoffman gives us the, that term, with uh, their um, calling all of us Cowans, we're all Cowans, and uh, profane, which means outside the temple. So they can do what they want with us. They can do what they want to us. Uh, we are their slaves, uh, unknowing, but uh, to be manipulated and how they admire each other. You see that in Shelby's account. They admire each other through how well they can pull off tricks, how well they can pull. And we're talking murder here, folks. We're talking theft on a grand scale. We're talking creating wars that then you go in and steal what you please. Like when they went into the Baghdad 
museum. museum. Yeah. I was like, oh, yes, do I know what that is about? And they claimed that, that the museum had been robbed by thieves. <laughs> yes, but they were called Freemasons. So um, they become, the Freemasons become the keepers. And throughout Shelby's account, you see again and again as they are pursuing him. And this is this is the amazing part of this is when you read Shelby's account, he somehow is able to very respectfully refer to his parents again and again, describing their behavior, describing what happened to the family. But you can see that Shelby sees that his parents were slaves, were owned by the Freemasons, and that they obeyed everything the Freemasons told them to do, including putting um, Shelby in severe danger in what the Freemasons then called initiatic ordeals. So time and time again, by the way. Yes, over, I mean, Shelby's whole life was basically being targeted by uh, Freemasons. And they would pass the ball when Shelby and his family moved, and they moved a lot. Uh, they were in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, they were in, um, in Florida. They were in Texas. They were all over the place because they would be sent places to do tasks for the Freemason Lodge or lodges that basically owned their slave contract. They never uh, thought of rebelling. They never thought of, of doing something else. And Shelby was from the beginning, I mean, we're talking three years old is the first amazing scene about the little bootlegger. It, Shelby was, he fought. He would not succumb. He would not. And, and yet at the same time, he was in great danger. And as he says a few times in the book, he, he was not allowed to have a childhood, and he didn't have one. And I think every abused uh, person who's been abused in childhood, whether it's physical, sexual, whether it's MKUltra, uh, CIA style, or whatever, can relate to that, that he was not allowed to have a childhood. And uh, I really think that, just to throw a personal comment in, I really think that I spent 16 years starting four Waldorf schools so that children could have a childhood in this um, this very controlled, very programmed society called the United States of America. So Shelby um, gives you an entire appraisal of his childhood. You go from one chapter to the next, which, by the way, I'm the one that put the chapters in as I saw the shift in what he was doing. He basically wrote the whole thing as as one with uh, no, no really uh, subtitles or anything. Um, so you go and you follow him and you see the behavior of the Freemasons. Most of them are simple uh, local Freemasons, maybe um, blue degree Freemasons. That's the first three degrees. Do we know what status his parents were, what branch they were in, and all that? Uh, as far as branch meaning like a lodge? Right. Were they of the Scottish Rite, the Orc Rite? Well, the Scottish, the way it seems to work is you do the blue degrees first, three degrees, and then mm -hmm. the Scottish Rite goes through the 32nd. Right. And then um, starting with the 33rd, since Albert Pike, anyway, 
Albert Pike being um, a Freemason at the end of the Civil War, he's the one who started, he gave birth to the Palladian Rite. And I did quite a bit of research on Pike and uh, the Pike family. And Albert Pike, uh, he would go into a trance to write the Palladian Rite. And that is the closest they come through the Palladian Rite, to my knowledge, to Satanism actual card-carrying Luciferian Satanism. Uh, and um, so uh, the Freemasons that Shelby seemed to have contact with, as I recall, were definitely Scottish Rite, and they had gone through this 32nd. As far as the 33rd and up, he did meet Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and uh, he spent time with, I mean, the more he was able to outsmart the foxes, to outfox the foxes, the the higher in, in esteem he went, and uh, they were obviously, um, in a way, nursing him along, though he could have been killed at any point, and it would have been no big deal, like he just didn't have what it took. Let's define that a little bit, because people are going to get this book, and they're going to say, man, this begs belief, but it, it's almost... One of the things you've got to understand, like when you see the black and white checkerboard, the, t- the tessellated game board, you can almost associate that one-to-one with the life of Shelby Downard. There's this grand game afoot, but it's not funny. People can die. He's in danger regularly, but it's almost like he's got an angel on his shoulder. It's almost like his refusal to bow to what he perceives as incorrect is a shield that he carries his whole life. And I just want to get that in there because when you start reading, and this only goes not even up to quite age 30, I'm still hoping that there's more beyond that. It's unbelievable the people that he's met, but when you try to go start to verify it, and I got to ask, did you did you try to verify any of this, Alana? No, not in the way you're talking about, like checking into newspaper. I, I did check several newspaper accounts just to see what the date really was and that sort of thing, because Shelby didn't have that in there. Um, but that's as far as I went. There were, I mean, when you realize the mystical aspect of Freemasonry. A lot of people think of it as a club. No club has initiation rites in which you could literally die. And we all know if we saw the, I think the, it was called The Skulls or something, you know, the, the movie that came out years and years ago. Skull and it, Bones, yeah. It, it, was, uh, it was about the Yale uh, Skull and Bones, and it was, it was just a Hollywood film. And uh, but it gave you a sense of the initiation when um, they had the young man get into a coffin and then shut the lid on it and that sort of thing. So um, to realize that this particular cult pretty much has run the United States since the uh, American Revolution is a very sobering thought. But because it's gone into the movies and it's invisible, you don't see any accounts of, uh, you know, you're reading an account of, of some murderer and uh, who's just murdered 13 people. Uh, there's nothing about the uh, affiliations he had or that he was programmed with, uh, you know, MK Ultra in order to do this kind of thing. You don't you, you don't see that level, and that's that's my point is that. My question is, and and it's something that 
I've already answered to my satisfaction, but for everyone else who's still sort of sleeping through this life and and doing the habitual life, the covering of life, uh, taking care of business that Americans are so proud of and having successes in that area, how how are you doing on the next level of life where you're you're really looking at in terms of, uh, of good and evil, in terms of self-development and non-self-development, uh, what is it to be a self? What is it to be a soul? Uh, you know, these are things Shelby had to answer uh, to some degree as a child. And uh, I mean, the things that happened to him in childhood, maybe you can relate now with more and more that's coming out about pedophiles and um, cults like the Pizzagate thing. And maybe you can relate to the fact that many children have childhoods very similar to Shelby's, but the thing that you mustn't miss while you're reading it, it's not just the the tale of abuse, one abuse after another. No, it, it was as if he was being tested the whole time by the Freemasons who owned his parents. It's almost like the game was so enjoyable and they were so impressed or they recognized the angel on his shoulder, any way you want to say it. It's almost like it was like one of their favorite chess games. You know what I'm saying? Yes, he challenged them. And and you can say many things about the Freemasons, but one thing I know, they admire um, courage they admire uh, someone who stands up for themselves. They admire various uh, traits that are are good, are good in the right context. But if they're used for constant criminality against what they call Cowans, uh, you know, people who don't know, people who are still asleep, people who behave like uh, children and think of the government as their parents, um, to take advantage of those people is no feat. I mean, come on, that is easy peasy to do. Shooting fish in a barrel, right? Exactly. And Shelby was no fish in a barrel. He was struggling, you know, even when he was on the line. I mean, the thing, you know, and is Shelby exaggerating at points? Like when he has the, 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 the scene of the serpent in which he and really what he's talking about he has this this camaraderie with this serpent that's uh with uh, belongs to some snake oil guy that's making money off of it and abuses it terribly it's like a like a boa constrictor uh and um Shelby right away tunes his mind into the serpent and they're like they're simpatico they're right in touch with each other what is that well that's that's mesmer's a- animal magnetism and that's how Mesmer knew it. He was able to set up this, uh, which the Freemasons made great use of, by the way. I don't know if Anton Mesmer was a Freemason, but I would assume he was. Because all the people that you read about as being discoverers like Edison uh, are Freemasons. And really, someone else invented the thing that they're known for. I mean, that's the research I did. The mind-blowing thing was that I have been taught a, a whole pile of lies about people like Edison, uh, who stole uh, what Tesla discovered, right? I mean, how many people have stolen what Tesla discovered? Uh, so 
that use of geniuses, and they knew they had a genius in Shelby. He was able to put things together and take them apart and put them together. He he was just an extraordinary being, which makes me feel, and I know this is completely not kosher to say, makes me feel that they had they somehow had access through one of their great astrologers to his chart and actually knew who he was, actually mm. knew who he had been. That's an interesting take, and I, I want to clarify the snake thing. When you get into the book that's the biography, it's going to come to the point where you're saying, wait a minute, how much of this is just you know, gilding the lily? But I think even in the parts where there is a bit of that going on, there is a subtext where you're still being told things. And by the way, had I not, and, and I wanted to ask you, and I will, if you were responsible for the newspaper clippings in that edit, or was he, um, but I, there's, there's points in that book where I'm not sure I would have stuck with it had I not done King Kill 33, because I vetted the living hell out of the ideas there, and they're solid. But to get back to the point, part of the verification, there's actual newspaper clippings that anyone could take the time to look up. Was that your work or was that his work? I think it was his work uh, because there were Xeroxed articles in the Xerox copy that uh, Michael Hoffman was selling. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much Adam added when he took it because I didn't have the original copy anymore. <laughs> So, uh, so okay, so I've covered the one level of what Shelby presents. That's the how Freemasons behaved at the beginning of the 20th century. I would say that today, if I could make a footnote comment here, that, um, that they are still the same. And a lot of people who say, how could they possibly do that? How could they possibly let all those people die? How could they, like on the Titanic? When the Titanic was sunk, it was no iceberg. It was entirely done by Freemasons. And in my opinion, it was to get a couple of guys on board, one of whom was John Jacob Astor. And um, that how many, I don't remember how many people were on board, at least a thousand, uh, that they would all sink with this Lord of the Dollar Aster. Um, that's how they do things. They they are the kings, no matter who's in the White House or who's sitting on the throne of England. They are the kings, and they can do what they damn well wish uh, with all of us Cowans. And that's that's very important. You see that in action with Shelby's well, life. Let's let's point something out here. And by the way, Jason and I may take some time to cover the whole Titanic thing because it's another of these mainstream things which clearly the theater of media has had its way with. Uh, we may boil it down to the Titans and the Olympians uh, and come at it from the uh, occult aspects. But one of the things Michael Hoffman did, he quit being Michael A. Hoffman II, probably because he was so censored and became Michael Hoffman. He began to do lots of work on the Vatican and other things. So do you have any sense, you know, everyone I think has it in mind that the Vatican has made these dictates and these canons that Freemasonry is bad and it's illegal and we're against it. But do you have any sense, and I'm sure Michael Hoffman must, because he's done both sides here and he's recently covered quite a bit, so well-researched about the Vatican from pre-Renaissance forward, actually. But what is the connection between Vatican and Freemasonry? Is it one of these things where there's some secret connection and all the rest of it is just for show? Or do you have any sense of that? 
Oh, I've done a great deal of research into that, and that's all in Sub Rosa America. Um, but uh, the the primary thing to know is that since Vatican II, they've been best buds, best buds. Uh, that, just to make a point, Michael Michael Hoffman in his seven some hundred page book, man, does he jump on Vatican II? What is that? Is that sixty two, sixty three? I don't recall. Yeah, it was around the time of Kennedy's assassination. Right. Right, and it—that's um, a lot of people know it as when the mass was it stopped being said in Latin, and went to English. Uh, but there's a whole lot more that has to do with Vatican II. But it was basically a pact. A pact had been made between the Freemasons and the Vatican Curio, uh, the cardinals. Uh, it really doesn't. The Pope doesn't do much uh, in that office. It's more the cardinals who are really running the program there. And most of the cardinals now, I hear, and I have not pursued it because I've been misgeoengineering, are uh, Freemasons as well. Because you can be a Freemason and be a lot of other things too. That's the point. Is uh, but your vows that you take in Freemasonry supersede any vow you would take uh, as President of the United States, as um, as as any office, uh, a judge, a Supreme Court judge, doesn't matter. Your vows to the Brotherhood are the crucial, crucial thing. And to understand how that works, I uh, always recommend the book The Brotherhood, uh, done by Stephen Knight in Britain. Uh, and it's about the British uh, legal system being completely controlled by Freemasons. But um, but it, it also has to do with the United States because we are, we're sort of always in bed with Britain. So uh, that's important to understand that the Vatican is very Freemason now, you might say. And, and of course, we have the Pope who is uh, a Jesuit. And the Jesuits are the other part of that drama. Uh, and we probably don't want to go into Jesuits today. Did Michael go much into the Jesuits in this, well, this Vatican book? He See, the reason I asked you the question I did is because Michael A. Hoffman has a way of writing things for people who can see, who can read between the lines. I noticed this to do with JFK, and I'm not going to get into that here, but my audience has a whole perception based on work and I, myself and others have done about the theater of that day. But I'm setting all that aside because at the base of what we're covering is we don't know anything um, short of what Shelby laid down. There are people who figured out levels of it. But what I noticed is Michael A. Hoffman would go back and do things like show the Pope way back in time who made Freemasonry illegal. And then he'll point out that uh, it's against the Vatican rules for a Jesuit ever to become Pope. So what he's doing uh, in those books is on the one hand saying there's real value to being a Catholic, and it's unfortunate that the worst of the worst took this place over all the way back whenever. But as far as I know, and, and to be fair, I still have about 100 pages left in uh, one of the big books, um, the Jesuits are not front and center as much as the occult and maybe by proxy implication, the ideas of Freemasonry, Rosicrucian. That's why when we first talked and he, you, he had called you a Rosicrucian, I asked, are you sure that was a compliment? because I had just been reading that book, but right. yeah, no, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think, I think it might be intended, but at the same time, I think he has an absolute idea of what was used in the Vatican. Um, and here's the thing. 
I don't know where he stands on the old natural, what I call the natural laws of the world, which to me are demonstrable. You can prove them. Um, but what I say over and over is we live in duality. Uh, every, every coin has another side. Every day, guess what? Night's coming. It's going to be dark soon. It proves that there's a duality in this world. And these old laws are no different than a tool. You can make something or you can kill something with tools. And so what he focuses in on is the fact that the Vatican had been corrupted uh, by forms of her medicine and, and Plato, uh, very down on Plato in a lot of his <laughs> writings. Um, and But you see, I, I I have referenced Plato a lot, but you know if you look at it in the way he is, yeah, Socrates was was more of a shining white example that's harder to smudge. Um, I guess is one way to say it. But he's down on it because of the way it was then used behind the scenes while they were acting like, hey man, the New Testament is all there is, and they were all about everything except the New Testament. Everything they were doing was being driven by ancient Judaism, Kabbalah, uh, the dark side of Hermeticism. And so um, that's why I asked. So we're, we're almost out of time for hour one, Alana. And just to let everyone know, I think we crossed the Rubicon. This is not running on social media, which is fine. Um, I'll put a bumper up there. But let's, let's set the table for what we're going to cover in hour two. Uh, in hour two, I want to get straight in uh, to these critical texts for the simple reason that right now the world mind is in duress and that's the majority of the game here you control the minds you control the outcome we see the overreach is extravagant of what's happened in our world today and we see a lot of minds beginning to question things they probably wouldn't have and that's why i think it's critical to lay down the work of downard and hoffman and by the way mr hoffman is still alive and if you have not read secret societies and psychological warfare you're missing a brilliant man try to tell average minds the truth about how you should be thinking about these things. And let me tell you another thing. In your life, you've been brought up to prejudge these types of ways of thinking as a bridge too far, fantasy, nonsense, conspiracy. But I'll tell you what, it's all provably correct. And we'll close out our one like this. Let's just very quickly, Alana talk a moment about onomology and topology. And the first of those words, how I describe it, is the black magic nature of names or how names can be used towards a kind of a black magic-y end. And the other one is toponymy. And what Mr. Downer did was he taught us the name of a place, the location of a place, the geographical layout of a place, the roads coming into a place, the naming of all these things. What has happened previously in these locales is all being leveraged on that big tessellated game board called Earth. Um, so what would you add in yeah. just a few minutes here as we begin to wrap up our one? Oh, yes. And, and, and I'm sure you'd agree with me that the King 30, the, by the King, way, I, I mailed King, your copy, King Kill 33. By the way, thank you, because now I have an original <laughs> and that means more than you will ever know to me. Thank you so yeah. much. Yep, you're welcome. So uh, in Kinkill, you really see how Dallas is at the 33rd degree latitude. Uh, then you go and study uh, where uh, Martin Luther King was killed, 
it's the 32nd degree, and then you check LA, it's 32nd degree. And um, there are certain latitudes in the earth itself, in the, in, you know, it would be the geomagnetic field that we have. It's all very carefully uh, has been documented as and accurately documented, by the way, by a wonderful New Zealand uh, harmonics mathematician who is n- named Bruce Cathy, C-A-T-H-I-E, in his three books that he wrote on how you can harmonically prove one thing, well, prove a lot of things. Uh, I could blow your mind with what he has proven through harmonics mathematics. I mean, he basically was uh, approached by the CIA uh, several times in order uh, to get him to work for them, which he, of course, refused because he was a moral and ethical man. But um, he he points out uh, the uh, the discovery of a, a, a an artifice uh, off of the South American coast. Uh, by some sort of trawler, and um, it was actually, uh, it's way down and planted deep in the earth, so they must uh, have uh, under the sea, so it must have been uh, tomographically sighted, or they had something that could go that deep, whatever, Uh, and, and he realized it was an antenna. And it not only was an antenna, but it appeared to be a phased array antenna, I mean, a very sophisticated antenna. And um, he was able, Bruce Cathy was able to get the exact uh, specs on where they had found it. And then from that and some other information he had gleaned in his own studies, he determined the exact, uh, how the uh, geomagnetic field is set up on the earth, the geomagnetic grid. And let me tell you, I know that the electromagnetic control being exercised over us now, it's a whole new ballgame, folks. Animal magnetism being a big part, uh, magnetism in general, a big part of the game we're going to get into an hour or two. Yes, and he was able to uh, configure that grid perfectly. So if you want to see that, you have to go and see the, um, the fellow who's inherited everything from Bruce since he died in 2012. Um, so anyway... That, Can you uh, cite the title of the World Network work that he did? Oh, the uh, the URL is what you want, and uh, I don't have that in front of me right now. Maybe so. we can post that in comments, but I think we're about at the top of the hour. We have other radio shows that, that run our first hour, so we have to come in on time. What we're about to do here, Alana, is we're going to take about a 10-minute break to use the restroom or get a coffee, and we'll come back for hour two everybody listening, this this is an important episode to me, and I hope everybody can keep their wits about them and set aside, parcel down what's being delivered here. Just set aside and focus on what the main point here is. And I'll say another thing. There in certainly in the writings of Hoffman, there are offhand sentences and writing where a kind of tuned-in mind understands to go between the lines. To some degree, I wonder about that in the Shelby writings, but as Alana pointed out, at times you're kind of wrestling with is the how, how much are we gilding the lily here, or is it just that there's an important idea that's kind of being encoded in the idea of a serpent or something like that? It's it's hard to know, um, but, <laughs> right. but, it, but it doesn't matter because he gave us King Kill. So everything on top of that will never matter, and that's what we're going to get into hour two. The alchemical right of prima materia, or basically in English, the first material, that one thing that can be subdivided no more 
the starting point, maybe, is a way we would think of it in English. Killing of the king. These are steps. These are procedures with an outcome. And what is that outcome? The outcome is revelation of method. And for my money, I think we're kind of living in the age of revelation of method. And the unfortunate thing is, is most people think, oh, we finally get to know. Sorry, revelation of method was put together very cleverly. And when we're talking about the 33rd parallel, which, by the way, on the East Coast is the first big Masonic plate temple is put down. Notice I'm using the word temple if people can think still. But to get back to the point. Uh, revelation of method is to let you know everything has happened and then collect your tacit permission and make it just another one of the operating procedures that's accepted in our world to the deficit of us all. But that does bring us to the top of the hour of hour one for episode 249. Join us on the other side at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777 radio.com. That is the only crow site in the world. Uh, in hour two, uh, we're going to cover all these things but we're going to cut loose. And I guess there's really no reason to have said that because this is not running on any social media anywhere. But I hope you will join us because those three things are maybe among the most important ideas that relate with what we're all experiencing in the year 2020. So there it is, man. Cheers.